Optimism. We are a husband and wife duo living in the Washington, D.C. area and providing our perspective on culture, politics, and events in the world. And aren't there a lot of them? <laughs> and that brings us to our topic today. Uh, we, Since we recorded our last episode in December, uh, I mean, there's been a number of world events happening, but we thought today we'd spend time discussing those global events kind of maybe a foreign policy focus uh there's two non-foreign policy experts yes (laughs) (laughs) we'll caveat that (laughs) particularly uh maybe the hook the goings on in congress right funding packages are being considered for uh different nations and causes that have i think created a stir and uh, so we have our, you know, expert comment commentator here, Rachel Barkley, <laughs> all things Congress. What's been happening, Rachel? Yes. Well, a lot has happened. A lot of, I, w- I would say a lot of posturing. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> there has been a lot of talk over the past year about um, continuing to send money to fund weapons in Ukraine in their battle against um, Russia for the past two plus years. And at the same time, we have, you know, the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israel and calls um, from, you know, largely Republicans to help defend Israel, defend itself, and then and and shore up our position in the Middle East um, Mm -hmm. as America, and then um, from the left, largely to help civilians in Gaza um, with their kind of humanitarian crisis. Hmm. Um, And then, of course, at the same time, we have the ever-looming, ever-present danger of China, which Mm -hmm. we just can never forget about, but um, is there. So we have kind of these three very different theaters, as they would say in the foreign policy world, um, going Hmm. on. And the 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 Senate and the House have been looking at different packages to fund these different pieces. There's different interest groups who, you know, are more interested in different theaters than others, and they need to cobble together a coalition to fund any of this kind of foreign aid and military spending. And how much money are we talking here? Well, um, I'll get to that in a minute. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> At the same time, uh, Republicans have kind of lumped in and said, hey, you know what a big national security threat is? Not only these three theaters, but our own southern border where we can't, you know, we have no idea if any adversaries are coming across the border because we don't have control right there right now. Mm -hmm. So in addition to, you know, um, good, well-meaning people coming from Latin America in Mexico into this country, you also have some bad actors. <laughs> yep. Um, and so we don't have a good handle on that, as has been clearly demonstrated. But that position is such a political hot potato on what should actually be done to secure the border. Um, you know, people want to loop in all other types of immigration reform with border security, which I would argue b- border security, immigration should be separate. I mean, they're related, but of course, you know, there, there are a lot more, there's a lot more baggage with immigration policy than just border security alone. So Republicans said, if we're going to have some kind of national security package, we've got to have our border secure. And so two Senate 
uh, two senators, one Democrat, one Republican, got together and put together what they thought was a bipartisan hmm. border security package where they thought they both compromised. They both, you know, covered the bases of their own party, but also, hmm. you know, found a solution, which is very hard to do in this issue area. And this, I mean, before it even got out there, it was killed by the base. Wow. So wow. that that package died and was a non-starter, of course, because in my experience, anything immigration, border security, I don't care what's in it, is going to get spun and is never going to get legs. So that died. And instead, Mitch McConnell was like, let's just have a pure national security bill where we focus on Ukraine, Taiwan, and Israel, Gaza. So what actually came to be was this past Tuesday, so we're looking at February 12th, um, the Senate voted with a vote of 70 to 29 on a $95 billion supplemental foreign aid package. So this included uh, $60 billion in military assistance for Ukraine, which includes building a lot of U.S. Um, munitions and whatnot. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then... Artillery rounds and exactly. that sort of thing. Exactly. $14 billion for Israel, $10 billion for civilians in conflict zones, including Gaza, um, and then some for Taiwan. And this bill uh, still has to pass the House, where it has a lot of opposition from Republicans and Speaker Mike Johnson. And... You know, it doesn't look like there's a great path forward, hmm. but you never you never know. I mean, the the margins are so slim that a couple Republicans, right. if all Democrats right. hold a couple Republicans go over, it could pass. Um, but in the Senate, only 22 Republicans voted yes for this bill. Wow, that's a helpful overview. That was a lot. Sorry. No, no, it was good. Um, helpful for me too. Uh, so, and is the house in session this week? I believe so. Okay, we can d run double check, run the numbers. Uh, so, it's interesting because a lot of these the topics, like the Ukraine aid, has become such like a political hot potato. To me, it seems like okay, sixty billion dollars in the scope of the whole federal budget is not all that much money. Like relatively speaking, oh, you checked the house. Are they, yes. are they working this they week? They are working this okay. week. Okay, they're all they're always working. I should shouldn't say that. Yeah, that's, they're that's they're in session in DC. In DC, they're probably working just as much back in the districts because that's oh, important. Yeah. Um, I fell into the the classic trope there. Uh, so yeah, sixty billion dollars for Ukraine, but there's so much like commentary like, oh my gosh, we're like wasting all this money, we're being duped. Well, it's like stealing taxpayer dollars to send overseas when our our cities are crumbling is kind of the narrative. Mm -hmm. Our borders crumbling, our cities are crumbling here in America. Why would we send this money to Ukraine is the kind of mm -hmm. counter narrative that you hear from the Republicans who voted against this package. And then this is why we are, at least I'm not a foreign policy <laughs> expert, because this is like the, the tricky trade-off and question of unclear outcomes and like difficult decisions because here there's this calculation with ukraine with russian russia's invasion of the country does our support like what kind of difference does it make and then if there were no support or lowered support or different kinds of support what does that do to russia's power and the plays that they're making in europe on the globe in the globe around the well, world Well, now we found out yesterday in 
this kind of semi leak that a House Republican made that the White House didn't want them to make is that Russia is sending nuclear weapons into space, <laughs> which is not great. Yes, space policy. Uh, anyway, I mean that, that's something. Like, yeah, because the risk there is you know you could detonate any kind of a like, munition doesn't have to be nuclear, but you say you blow up like a couple of satellites and then all of a sudden that debris is hurtling around the the earth knocking out whatever's in its path because it's you know traveling at tens of thousands of miles an hour it's like bullets or and our cities go down because satellites go down right connectivity yeah like a gps or whatever but then there's you know some resiliency with newer satellite technology like starlink for instance uses low earth orbit satellites Mm -hmm. like when starlink creates you know connectivity with its services it's launching you know dozens and hundreds of satellites at a different elevation so it's much more resilient so like mm-hmm. old way of like you know satellite connectivity yeah, it was like one very expensive satellite maybe like geostationary so it would stay above like one particular part of the world <laughs> you can tell i'm maybe going for i'm just saying like <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> here's a reason maybe for some optimism to pull in our, our headline uh newer satellite tech is much more dispersed yes and uh okay. resilient i didn't know that well <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna pull back a little bit <laughs> i'm gonna to back to earth <laughs> i'm gonna pull back to earth <laughs> and um this will be an interesting conversation for taylor and i because Uh-oh. we've both evolved over the years but taylor has been a little bit more in the like libertarian isolationist Uh-oh. side calling me out <laughs> whereas i've been a little bit more on the peace through strength mm. deterrence through strength one Ronald Reagan. <laughs> One Ronald Reagan. Um, and I guess, you know, I I get where the skepticism of this national security spending and beefed up American presence comes from. You know, I think a lot of it stems back to we talk Taylor and I were just talking about, you know, the the lies about weapons of mass destruction i think mm. looms large from in, the 2003 iraq invasion yes yeah. um you know it, it created this distrust in our leaders that there are these people who are lying in order to enter into war and that is about the worst possible scenario imaginable <laughs> so right you know i think that started this trend of what can we really believe which i think maybe vietnam also Oh, totally. Falls in that camp. Yeah. And so we went from, you know, World War II, this very just war, into that mindset. But, you know, I think we also forget that leading into World War II, there was also kind of this isolationist mind. Like we, we have always had this in our history because probably where we stand... Uh, geographically in the world right yes <laughs> we don't have we don't a huge factor yeah. have neighbors who are trying to invade us all the time yes um so americans have always had this isolationist kind of streak and the arguments it's just interesting to me the arguments that we hear against kind of a beefed up american foreign policy are not new so we heard so senator ron johnson and his reasoning for not funding Uh, Ukraine said basically that yes Putin is an authoritarian killer bad guy (laughs) but 
we think he's going to win in Ukraine. So why spend American dollars helping them? Basically, Hmm. like it's not in our interest. Yeah, he's a bad guy, but they can't win. So Hmm. leading up to World War Two, there were senators who said, yeah, Hitler's a bad guy. But you know what? he's they're gonna win in britain so why why get involved (laughs) so i mean this is this is not a new argument and right the same things have happened time and time again and of course you know these arguments were right when it came to weapons of mass destruction and the the very minority of voices that spoke against invasion in iraq right and so this is where it gets kind of murky like, where you're, where like the, the, w. the critics of ah, right, entering right, 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 Iraq, right, right, right. who were yes. small and, and few true. at the time. True, true. Um, so, of course, you can look at that and say, you know, we were right then and they didn't listen to us. And, and I think that's a lot of what's happening. Mm. To me, yeah, even given my more isolationist streak, um, I'm glad we're not sending... Like, there's a sliding scale of responses. So, the Ukraine instance, like, I'm very happy we're not sending troops. Right. Like there are no, well, to my knowledge, there are no American <laughs> boots on the ground, as it were. Uh, it's like provision of equipment, munitions, maybe technology. Um, that's better in my mind than the alternatives. Uh, so it's like you can pick maybe zero or, you know, invasion. And it's like big sliding scale in between. And... I don't. I guess I have trouble getting upset about the money spent because it's it's been in what at this point two hundred billion dollars sent since like Russia invaded Ukraine somewhere around there. Like it's not like like that's a lot of money. But right. when we're talking about federal budget, like if you really want to cut down spending in the federal budget, if that's your concern, you need to look at what Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. Right. <laughs> right. Like that is the vast majority mm-hmm. of federal spending. We're talking like over fifty percent. Right. So if you're really concerned about spending, look there. Um, I guess, you know, I I find the arguments persuasive, yeah, that it's it's worth the spend to help Ukraine stand up to this invasion from Russia. Yeah, and I guess, you know, the for me, the question of is this, why, why should America get involved is because kind of what you were getting at is deterrence is vastly cheaper in dollars and in lives lost than actually entering into conflict right deterring and showing the bad guys of the world who hate the west despite what tucker carlson thinks which we'll get to that later um (laughs) so putin hates the west he want he has wanted us to fail he wants europe to fail um you know north korea iran and we we see these bad guys on the move, right? Mm. They are clearly talking to each other. They're clearly emboldened to take action, right? The mm-hmm. um, talk, you know, more about Hamas's invasion of Israel. Why did Iran feel so emboldened to, to support them? Why now? Yeah. And and I think there are a lot of reasons with um, blame to be on both sides of the aisle. I think. We forget about how embarrassing our retreat from Afghanistan, just pulling mm. out, leaving our allies there, yeah, yeah. Um, how embarrassing that was and what a blunder by the Biden administration that was. Um, and clearly just this sense that America is kind of weak and divided and 
you know, would Putin have made that advance so boldly on Ukraine if he thought that the NATO American response was going to be strong? Maybe because he's crazy, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, there's just this, um, you know, if America Hmm. appears strong to the world, then these bad guys are going to be more afraid to act. Hmm. Yeah, Yeah, those are all good points. I mean, did you want to touch on, you mentioned what Israel Hamas, Tucker Carlson interviewing of Putin. I mean, we have a few minutes left. I mean... Which of those should we quickly touch on? <laughs> oh man! Oh man! Okay, I think. I maybe... mean, both. Both. I mean, Israel Hamas is like a. It's just terrible, terrible situation. Um, it's been painful to observe, and like the reports coming from all all aspects are are painful. I'm reading a book right now about the history of Israeli intelligence, uh, called "Rise and Kill First," mm-hmm. specifically about targeted assassinations from Israeli intelligence. And it's helped me, it helped put a lot of context and, you know, there's only one book, but like, it's been helpful historical context to what's happening now to you know, past violence, like Lebanon and Israel being at war in the eighties. Uh, you know, the, how Hamas like came to be and et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, um, did you want to talk about I mean, um, why don't you continue on talking about, I think, so Taylor has been to Israel. I think you have more knowledge expertise on that conflict. And maybe I know a little bit more about the Russia side. Man, I, (laughs) I I know like (laughs) 0.0001 things about it. Uh, Yes, visited in 2009. Um, uh, mostly with like a, a a tour that went through Israel and visited Bethlehem in I think it's what technically the West Bank um it's a Palestinian territory and I mean it's just very stark it reminds me of visiting Northern Ireland and Belfast and you know there's big huge walls with barbed wire on top uh everywhere it's clearly like the local culture is marked by um you know, signs of violence and strife. And so this is, you know, gosh, over a decade ago, but, um, you know, people do go about their daily lives and I've had, you know, interesting conversations with people, uh, you know, people who've served in the Israeli military and have relatives there. And then people who have, uh, family in the West bank and Gaza included. And just, it's, you know, the, the gulf between the two perspectives and experiences are just, uh, I really struggle with like, man, how is this ever reconcilable? Mm-hmm. And I got that same sense when I was studying in Ireland in like the mid aughts of just like hearing the experiences of quote, both sides. And I don't think, you know, can be limited. We kind of do that. At least we, I, it's, we do that for simplicity's sake. Mm-hmm. Like, there's so much complexity and history and, um, uh, yeah, so I guess I, I just struggle with that, but I think there's there's room to just be sad about the situation, no matter like quote which side you think is is mm-hmm. right. Um, right, like there are civilians on both sides who are, you know, casualties. Oh yeah, caught caught at the whims of you know the leadership. I, w- I won't call Hamas the leadership of Palestine, but mm-hmm. um, they're like the, the one of the powers right now, and that's what I've, what I've gotten from this book, like the different organizations representing Palestinian interests like 
uh, ebb and flow, mm. depending on you know, who's alive or not, and money available or not, and um, and at the same time, like we can call the attacks on October seventh atrocious, right? And just the the context and the history that you know the Israelis live in Israel because they have been targeted and killed. Yeah. In other countries and there has been no place for them to go. Right. And these attacks have happened since the Old Testament (laughs) and continue to happen today. Right. Right. And so there is this, you know, um, what the terrible Hamas terrorist attack has this context of anti-Semitism. And I mean, you look at their rhetoric and it's clear that they want the extermination mm-hmm. of Jewish people. Yeah, yeah, um, right. And so it's it's different than just a territory, you know, skirmish. It's that Hamas does not think that they should exist at all. Right, right. <laughs> and Hamas distinct from many Palestinians exactly. who live in those areas or around the world. Which is what makes it complicated. Yes. Is Man. that the... The aggressor they that Israel is fighting against is not all of the people living in Gaza, all of the Palestinians. I mean, there's been a, a podcast I've found helpful with multiple interviews, and I'm, I'm not an expert on this field, but um, it just it's featured a lot of interviews with people who are experts. Uh, Call Me Back podcast with Dan, it looks like Senor, <laughs> S-E-N-O-R, um, interviewing you know journalists and experts experts so it's just worth i don't know spending time with that sort of content and reading and Mm -hmm. listening complexity well in what i think is a less complex (laughs) situation we'll switch over to ukraine um so i have talked about before my uh grandmother and great-grandparents uh, immigrated to the West, to Canada first, then to the U.S. after um, Soviet invasion of Lithuania. And with this family history, I've followed kind of deeply the, um, you know, post-Cold War borderland countries and Russia and the Soviet Union. And um, just what I think sometimes we forget is that these borderland countries kind of the between central europe and Mm. russia have been in conflict for a very long time these Mm. borders have shifted um they the the people of these countries ukraine lithuania the baltic countries poland have been threatened by the various forms of the russian empire so whether it's the czarist Russian empire, the Soviet Mm -hmm. union, now the Putin authoritarian regime, um, for hundreds of years, this is not something new. And what can I like, Andrew, my favorite thing is like the last 70 years of European history has been weird in that it's like been relatively peaceful and fixed because of NATO, (laughs) because of NATO, right? Post world war two, but for most of human history, you look at Europe and it's like scattered kingdoms and warring factions and like so much, so much violence. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, but there is this particular, you know, Russian imperialism that has marked these borderland countries. It maybe is distinct. They're just trying to get to warmer weather, weather, Rachel. (laughs) Um, and so going to the Tucker Carlson interview, I think 
maybe Tucker thought he was going to go in and ask Putin, why did you invade Ukraine? And he was going to say, because NATO, you know, like Tucker's ready to say that America is to blame. Hmm. And no, you know what Putin does? He spends 30 (laughs) minutes going back in the imperialist history of you of russia and he says the reason he does this is because he's an imperialist he tells us this from his very own lips <laughs> he doesn't say it's because of nato he says he gives this long imperialist history of actually these lands were all ours at one point <laughs> which is just i mean it's mind-blowing to me huh. that the people who loved this interview love tucker couldn't even see this from Putin's own mouth. And so, you know, I look at my Lithuanian ancestors and it's clear Russia wants their land. Putin, in his mind, he has this, you know, Peter the Great throwback, this Soviet throwback where all those lands should be back in Russia's purview. That's what's going to make him great. Hmm. uh, This great leader in Russian history, right? So it's like you see the Ukraine invasion and think about the the Baltics of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland. Oh, I mean, you you look at those leaders of the Baltic nations. Belarus is sort of already Russian. <laughs> it, well, it, yeah, it is. It's a yeah. puppet state. Um, I mean, you talk to any of those leaders and they know that they have a target. And they this is why, you know, I vis- so I visited Lithuania twice and been to all three of the Baltic countries. And the leaders of those countries are quick to say immediately to American visitors, one, how much they love America. Hmm. Two, we sent more than our fair share of soldiers into Afghanistan with you immediately Hmm. after 9-11. We didn't question it. We said, you are a NATO, NATO ally. And you are part of the, we're part of the free world with you. We're going in with you. They sent more than their fair share. Um, as and proportionally speaking, I mean, uh, there are like, what, one and a half million people in each of those three countries, right? Actually, I know, like, know, Estonia is like 1.3 million. It's small. It's, yeah. Um, and, and that's the thing. Um, you know, Americans say these are small little countries. It doesn't matter to us. But I think what Ronald Reagan understood is that all of these small countries being a part of the free world versus the authoritarian Mm. world, it matters. It matters to the space of the free world shrinking, shrinking, shrinking um, matters to our own security, right? And, you know, these these aggressions aren't going to stop there if we just say, ah, we're sitting back, we're just going to let them go. I think we've seen how that played out in history. You know, it's like Neville Chamberlain versus Winston Churchill, who was right there. Mm. Um, And, you know, normally I wouldn't be one to be alarmist, but I think that seeing all that has happened in the past two years that our enemies feel so emboldened that we're in kind of more of a place of high alert than I feel like we have been in hmm. in my lifetime. Hmm. And my lifetime has been marked by this Pax Americana. Like our yeah. lives, the 90s right. was kind of the right. height of right. Pax Americana. We could sit back, America, you know, we defeated the Soviet Union the year I was born. <laughs> From then <laughs> Thanks, on, Rachel. We're, we're good. Our economy was so strong in the 90s and we could lean on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But now we see our enemies don't seem to fear us. <laughs> hmm. And... Um, you know, I'll kind of end with this, that uh, there's this good piece by Niall Ferguson uh, recently, and he's a historian, British historian, mm-hmm. 
And he wrote about like the inability of the American imagination to have kind of a dystopian view of what happens if we lose. Like we, Pax Americana has been so long that we can't envision what it's like to lose. And so there almost needs to be like a movie or something painting this dystopian picture of what if China invades Taiwan Hmm. and what if China then sees us not do anything and decides to make a move against us and allies with Russia and, Mm -hmm. and what would happen if, if these terrible things came to pass. Um, And I think that's a good exercise that we aren't as secure as we once were and that our military is, we've let it kind of fall into shame. We don't have the extra, um, you know, destroyers. We don't have Mm -hmm. a big munition stockpile, et cetera, that Ronald Reagan really built up in the eighties to show the world that we were ready. So maybe this shifts to, well, how can we have radical optimism in this context, Rachel? Um, and maybe I can I can start just, I think within even a, an optimistic framework, it's it's consistent to acknowledge like, you know, points of like threat points and to acknowledge suffering mm-hmm. um, to not like put, you know, one's fingers in one's ears and just la 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 la, <laughs> and, uh, I don't hear anything. I guess I think about, you know, the history, like, I love, you know, historical context, broken record, I guess. But, um, like, even with, you know, America's, quote, readiness, with, like, every single major conflict, I was was stunned to read about the Korean War. You know, 1950, uh, Americans went into North Korea, and soldiers didn't even have winter gear. Wow. And that was just, you know, five years after World War II, where we were, you know, producing like more tanks than cars and like military equipment. And just, I think over and over each conflict, like um, America just, that seems to be the default when it comes to conflicts, COVID-19 included, right? Like it takes us a while to kind of get up to speed. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But sure, you could talk about like, well, peacetime, maybe now numbers, like say like number of ships are lower than peacetime Reagan. But anyways, like that, I don't know, just kind of puts in context. Okay, even if we're behind, there's still a capability to get ready if something yeah. big did happen. Um, and of course, that could change at any moment. We don't know the future. Things can always be different. Um, but the historical trend is, is uh, I just keep that in mind. I don't know, what would you say? How, how do we have radical optimism with all this? Yeah, it is. I mean... It does feel daunting, but like you said, I mean, think about pre-World War II. We're coming out of the Depression. I mean, you know, the people who are like, our cities are crumbling, our nation's crumbling. How can (laughs) we even think about the rest of the world? Well, that's kind of the position we were in (laughs) coming out of the Great Depression, Mm. right? Things were not good at home here. 20% unemployment. Yeah, I mean, life was not good in America's cities, worse than it is here now. Um, And there was this deep deep isolationist streak right and unfortunately it did take tragedy it took pearl harbor to wake us up which i hope and pray that doesn't happen which i know that's not an optimistic take um well wait why not (laughs) well that it it would take a disaster to ah ah, okay like yeah yeah, um like if that's been the historical trend but all that to say we we did defeat evil and i think there is you know, something to that great leaders rise up, you know, the Winston Churchill's of the world rose up and Mm -hmm. there was this, I mean, you know, you look at all these stories during world war two, like, wow, that great Britain did pull it out. And, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, just this belief that good will prevail. 
Yeah, and you know the, the cosmic truth never changes, right? Of God being in charge, um, no matter what happens. I think I think too with maybe one difference, you know, like World War Two is the frame, like global trade and interconnectivity is greatly increased. Mm-hmm. So I think the the consequences are higher, right? For say a major conflict, um, like you know with chi- China and Taiwan there's like one of the conjectures is well china has zero has they're they're like a you know five to ten years behind us and making advanced computer chips right. for like you know ai systems et cetera, et cetera. and taiwan is a center for like most of the advanced chip manufacturing but then so people would say chinese who invade it to get that capability but there's also well if they did it would probably destroy that capability so it's not going to help them in that sense so it has to be something else so it's like I don't know if like who knows how much of a deterrent that is or isn't or a tractor. I, I think it's more probably more deterrent than attraction. And just I think about this, the, the interdependencies that exist now compared to true, you know, fifty years ago, even twenty years ago. Um, true, and um, you know, even with you know the Suez Canal and you know Red Sea and that whole area off the Horn of Africa being shut down because of pirates. Like there's still products being you know shipped mm. around the world. Right. Um, so. Yes. I don't know. I think about that too. Yes. And, you know, as much as it feels like there's a dearth of leadership right now, I'm hopeful that that good leadership will emerge. You know, I think that Hmm. right now, both Republican and Democratic sides, it's, I don't see any leadership. I don't see anybody speaking into a hopeful vision of America. You know, I'm... Hmm. On both sides of the aisle. On the left, it's that, you know, America's colonialist position is a danger to the world and a bad thing. And on the right, it's America's corruptness and Hmm. the deep state is, you know, deeply harmful here and abroad. And so both sides kind of have a little bit of an anti-American tinge. So, you know that's a negative thing. The hopeful thing is that some type of leader emerges out of this vacuum, hmm. um, including a I third think, way, <laughs> our corporate leadership. Yeah. Of, yeah, yeah. You know, instead of Mark Zuckerberg retreating to his Hawaiian compound, <laughs> I'm hopeful that, you know, some of these great American Titans and innovators will emerge to say like, Hey, our companies are going to build American technological savvy hmm. to where, China can't even compete because yeah. our advanced weapon systems are so good. <laughs> um, hmm. So I think they're, I don't know, I just believe out of this bad time, there are going to emerge these good leaders, maybe from our generation, yeah. <laughs> who say enough is enough with this kind of lack of morale <laughs> yeah. in American culture and belief in, in the American way. It's a good way to end. Transition to stingers and thinkers. All right. I'll start with my stinker. Sure. <laughs> well, I, as you could probably guess, it's the Tucker Carlson <laughs> interview. <laughs> so what really like got me about all this is... What grinds your gears. <laughs> yeah, it, it is really grinding my gears all week. And you know, all these people saying, he should be able to do this. Sure, he should be able to do this. Free speech. Do what you want, man. 
But, you know, his grandstanding that nobody, no American journalist has done this. No, American journalists have requested these interviews. And in fact, Putin's press secretary said as much that other Western outlets ask all the time for interviews. And they say no. Putin's team says no because they can't control it. (laughs) They can't control the narrative. And what really killed it's like um, Tucker was today's version of uh, um, Walter Durante from the New York Times in the 30s. So he was the New York Times leading reporter who said, oh, the Soviet Union is just this. It's the future. And wrote all of these pieces about how wonderful Stalin's Soviet Union is because he was there under Stalin's purview. So they gave him the golden tour of the golden city. They didn't show him the bad stuff. Right. They only, they kept him confined. And a really great movie that everyone should watch is called uh, Mr. Jones. Yeah, and I was just thinking, because they portray him in that film. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, Mr. Jones. And it's really the only, like, film that kind of talks about what happened in Ukraine under Stalin, Hmm. um, in which that history is very relevant to how Russia views Ukraine today, um, and Stalin's um, genocide against the Ukrainian people called Holodomor. So uh, reporter Gareth Jones decided to sneak out of the Russian media kind of lockdown in Ukraine and the rest of the Hmm. country um, of Stalin's Russia in the thirties and he goes and sneaks into Ukraine and he captures what's happening with the genocide, but the Western media doesn't cover it. And he ends up, you know, shunted aside and the story is not told, um, which is just, you know, crazy to us now because we all know what Stalin is like, but mm. all that to say, Walter Durante being Tucker Carlson today kept in the little, you know, bubble of how great Russia is. And so now Tucker's going all over saying how superior Russia is. Moscow, Grocery yeah. prices are lower. It's the yeah, golden yeah. city. Yeah, for the 500 oligarchs that, you know, have most of the wealth. I read somewhere that, yeah. you know, a decent amount of the rest of Russia outside the imperialist city um, still have use outhouses. <laughs> wow. Um, anyway, it's just... It blows my mind that, yeah, I can't. I mean, it's like this history of yeah, uh, elite elites going to Russia and glowing about it. Um, like FDR sent delegations in the 30s, yes. and like, and I think it's important to remember, like, at, at up and like for most of the 1900s, like, Soviet system is like, well, maybe this is a pretty good way of doing things because they they were a military leader, a leader, a global superpower. Like all the reports coming out were great. You send people to visit, and of course they're great because they're curated tours. But then it like, oh, actually it's just uh, smoke and mirrors. And let's not forget, Putin is a believer in the Soviet regime. and said, you know, basically he doesn't know why the leadership let it fall. We had, yeah. you know, global power and. He recently put the Estonian prime minister on like a war criminals list because they got rid of Soviet statues in Estonia, right? Maybe our podcast got picked up by the Russian uh, we're gonna monitoring have people. People watching us now. Um, <laughs> so anyway, that was far too long for me to rant, and I could go on longer and longer about what all a of stinker. <laughs> the people that Putin has murdered and Americans who are currently captured there that. Tucker Carlson did not cover. <laughs> Lots of stinks. Um, my stinker is a book about AI and biotech called The Coming Wave by Mustafa Suleiman. 
it was just boring. <laughs> it was like 600 pages of like word salad. And I, I you know, I, I, I guess I, I throw this out there because there's, you know, AI is a hot topic and mm-hmm. there's like, there's so many books and people are looking for resources. And I, I don't think I'd recommend this one. Um, uh, maybe it's like a good introduction, but I, I ended up like skimming it and like, I find it helpful to have familiarity with even like bad books, but, um, it wasn't even that great on like solutions. So anyway, <laughs> the coming wave. How many Not books out there? How much ink has been spilled on AI? Oh man. <laughs> it's a cottage industry. And I'd say like the majority are not that helpful. Yeah. Like I asked uh, an AI developer like, oh, what books did you read? What'd you recommend? And she had zero. <laughs> uh, she's like, I just, well, she was like, I just do it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is All right. What's your thinker? Um, I think her is the Honestly podcast by the Free Press's Barry Weiss. Um, you've talked about the lack of trust in media telling us what's happening, the lack of trust in our leaders. Um, and so I think just the reporting that they've done at the Free Press and kind of this um, truth seeking, I think, that happens hmm. by their reporters on their podcast has just been refreshing and. Uh, yeah, the topics are just all really interesting, and um, she brings you know outside the box voices on, and it's really good. Nice. I think my thinker is another book. Uh, one Christianity Today's recent Book of the Year award, Biblical Critical Theory: huh. uh, How the Bible's Unfolding Story Makes Sense of Modern Life and Culture. And it's by Christopher Watkin. Interesting. Provocative title, but it, it didn't make sense to me until I read the or read the preface and it's like critical theory being like, let's strip away everything else. And what is this, you know, uh, how does this, uh, inform our current life? So not like power structures, right? Right. And he just like, he marches through the Bible. Like for instance, you know, what is like the creation narrative in Genesis, like how radical that was even, you know, in ancient history, it is Uh, now on how it kind of like, has influenced this is kind of in the genre of books that like tell us kind of the air we breathe Uh um it's like you know the assumptions that i think especially westerners walk around with that you know uh time is you know flowing in one direction and Mm. it's progress like that's a very biblical view it's not you know like other creation myths and narratives were you know an accident of the gods fighting and murdering mm. each other and then you know out out pops the earth and human beings whatever yeah so it's really and it, I, it, I haven't even finished it but like recently i was talking about you know abraham sacrificing of isaac and i'd never heard this perspective before but it made a ton of sense of like we view that story through our lens of like oh my gosh what is abraham thinking he must have been torn up about sacrificing his son but it's this author saying well at the time like child sacrifices were pretty common wow yeah it's like you sacrifice your kid to get like even greater benefits. So as huh. Abraham is getting to know Yahweh, wow. like maybe it wasn't like totally out of left field for him. Mm. Like oh, all the other people are doing this to their gods. Yeah. Like it doesn't make it good. And it's just like, feels weird to say that, but this author is just saying like, Hey, if you put really get in Abraham's skin uh-huh. at the time, like maybe this wasn't like, as like, it sounds so bizarre to us right now. Yeah. Like at the, then it was like, well, I sure it sucks, but, like I'm f- stepping forward in faith and, huh. you know, and God provides like that is clear through the text over and over. He like emphasizes that repetition in the text of like, you know, God providing. Mm. So interesting. Anyway, it's a really helpful book. That sounds great. Biblical critical theory. Very helpful. Uh, well, thanks everyone for listening. Especially the, uh, 
security services in Russia. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> shout kidding. out to the... We're not that important. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure they're scraping the internet, <laughs> picking stuff up. Pros and cons. Um, but anyone, yeah, thanks for listening.